Welcome to the Maine Question Podcast from the University of Maine. We're glad you found us and are taking the time to tune in. I'm your host, Ron Liznat. It's a pretty good-sized understatement to say that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a major effect on businesses of all kinds and the world's economy. No matter the size of a company or what it produces, there are major shifts taking place in how business is getting done. Some are adapting well. Many are struggling. And sadly, there are businesses that probably won't survive in the new world we will all inhabit post-pandemic. How businesses acquire and manage knowledge, new ways of thinking, and putting that knowledge to use in a timely manner is one of the keys to the very survival of a business, especially when things are changing as fast as they are these days. That process is the subject of some new research by two professors in the main business school at UMaine. Their work looks at another arena where quick, sound decision-making and the wise use of knowledge can literally mean life or death, namely the military. Nori Jones, a professor of management information systems, teamed up with John Mayen, a professor emeritus of international business policy and strategy, to look at how knowledge is collected and decisions are made and how that process could help businesses make smart choices in turbulent times. That research has turned into a book on the subject entitled Knowledge Transfer and Innovation. They both joined us remotely to talk about their work. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, normally, it would be great to be together and, and have this chat, but uh, we have uh, Zoom to bring us together, and that's something, right? Right. Appreciate you taking the time. Uh, this book and the research you're doing certainly seems timely right now, uh, if if not so more than ever. But maybe let's let's start here. Um, can you just talk basically about knowledge in today's world? H- have we ever had more information and data to digest and process. There's a lot of numbers and information and data out there, isn't there? Yes. uh, In fact, it's interesting that you say that because, in fact, we are actually drowning in data and information. But in contrast, knowledge is when you kind of distill it to find what is most important and most relevant. Knowledge has to be collected, organized, and then dispensed. If you don't do the the first two, uh, can you even execute the third and dispense it and use it? No, you can't. But even more importantly is to recognize when you have a situation where it requires new knowledge and thinking. And if you think about it, we actually have two situations unfolding right now. One is the COVID-19 situation, which everyone is dealing with. And the other one, from an educational standpoint, is the rippling impacts of COVID-19 on education as to how it's delivered, financed, and managed going forward in the future. Can you talk about what led to this work and and this book and this research? Well, I'd say that, um, you know, the only real source of sustainable competitive advantage for any organization is the knowledge that they have in the form of their intellectual capital, their employees. And, you know, if, um, if organizations, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, if they want to remain viable, if they want to succeed, then they have to be looking at continual innovation. And the only way that you can have continual innovation is through knowledge, is by bringing your, you know, smart, knowledgeable people together and always adapting or being even more proactive about creating new knowledge, which is essentially innovation. John, your thoughts. Why does this topic interest you? Because I think it's fascinating. I think Nori hit right on, on, on target. 
the notion of how, how figure out how to deal with situations we haven't faced before. And I, I like to give examples to make that clear. Think about New York City for a moment and the cost of rent and space used by what we would call knowledge-intensive organizations, the financial services and others. One of the things that is unfolding right now is that people are using Zoom and technologies like we're using right now to the extent they've never been used before. Now, put your hands uh, or mind, if you'd like, around a realtor holding six 60-story buildings in Manhattan that you're renting out huge square footage to these facilities. Will they be used again in the future to that extent? I would suggest probably not. So then the question for the realtors become, what do we do with that space? What do we do with this? And then, by the way, look at the rippling impact for New York City, the tax revenue that comes from that, and, and all of the stores and surrounding areas that gain from those people being there are all impacted. We have not really touched from a knowledge perspective and action on those impacts that are going to suffuse throughout all society. Now, today's world in particular, the situation we're dealing with COVID-19 uh, and the pandemic is probably the, the very definition of a, a rapidly changing environment. Uh, so can you talk in general about the importance of any organization to be able to process information, turn it into knowledge and, and adapt and, and make good decisions? Yeah, actually, Ron, you, you've hit the nail right on the head. I mean, if you look at, if you watch the news, you're seeing uh, reports from across the state, across the country, across the world, that every country is trying to leverage the expertise and knowledge of very smart people, scientists who are doing all kinds of things. Look at the, you know, hundreds of different uh, uh, antibody tests and the vaccine development and so on. But the thing is that the issue is trying to harness that unique knowledge, that expertise that is needed to really get a grasp on this COVID-19 crisis, to, to solve it, to find that vaccine. And, and so the challenge is, how do you find the best knowledge across the world? And once you find it, how do you bring those people together and their amazing, valuable knowledge so that they can solve these problems that are changing all the time. And so that's kind of the whole issue, but, but it, you know, if we could somehow develop systems to do that, then harnessing this and, and, and finding the solution to this COVID-19 would, would be a lot easier. It's interesting that you use the military in the decision-making process that they employ, which, you know, the stakes couldn't be higher. Similarly, businesses right now are many of them fighting for their own survival. So just talk about how that analogy works between the business world and the military world that, that you did your research on. The way it worked for us was, was, was just quite simply. We were originally looking for situations where knowledge and its rapid transfer of new knowledge was crucial. And the military struck us as the perfect arena to take a look at that. You are in, in a firefight in Afghanistan, and you are confronted with new tactics that you've never seen before. And you have to respond on the minute to that. You don't have an hour to think and plan. After it is done, how do you communicate that new knowledge that you've just developed instantaneously in the experience 
to people in another theater. The same goes for business. So, for example, I'll give you just a wild example. Trust. Look at how many people do you think are going to hop on a cruise ship in the next year, given what has occurred. So, for a cruise ship and for the cruise business, how are they going to restore people's trust in coming back to use their products and services? The lessons that they will learn from dealing with that unique situation could be applied, for example, to how do we restore trust in our government's ability to respond to pandemics. They could learn from that, but they have to be able to communicate it. Yeah, and Ron, if I could just add to that just a little bit. John's point is is perfect because the other thing is that you can't just say, oh yeah, let's just let's just share knowledge, let's just find experts. In fact, the idea of trust and culture and leadership um, are all absolutely uh, integral to the ability to share this knowledge and for people to accept it and use it. The term that jumped out in some of the literature you shared was uh, situations that are high velocity, turbulent environments. That certainly describes a military conflict. It works in the business world too. That's the, uh, the situation you're trying to deal with uh, in your research, correct? Yeah, and also I'd say it deals with dealing with the pandemic right now. Look at, look at all the news that we're being bombarded with. What causes the pandemic? How long will it exist? Will it go away in the summer? How is it transmitted? How is it affecting the body? Almost every time you turn on the news, you get different information that has to be analyzed and thought about. And it's coming at us almost at the speed of light. And, you know, in trying to deal with this situation, that's what makes it so difficult. As we talked about, the pandemic is ramping this up for businesses today. Just maybe talk about some examples. One that comes to mind for me is how restaurants and people that provide food, grocery stores, whatever, have to pivot right now. Can you, can you talk about how that might play out for them and if there's any other examples that you, that you used in your research? If you think about it, one of the other things that has been occurring now is many stores throughout the country are doing curbside delivery where you call up. You order what you need, and then you pull up in a car, and they put it in the back of the car, and you never touch, see, get out of your car, or see anyone else. One of the other explosions that is going to have an impact on restaurants and food stores and everything else is suddenly people are shopping more online than ever before, and they're finding out that that's easy to do. So it's not just pivoting to how do we deal at a restaurant in terms of seating and the normal things that you would think about. But how do we deal in a situation where people and the very process of going about business has changed in fundamental ways? And that's one of the things that we're all going to have to deal with. I was amazed, quite frankly, in that many of the states, the first things that they opened up here in Maine and in other states, they opened up hairdressing salons, tattoo parlors. Now, if you think about that for a moment, that requires intimate contact. I'm in your face. I'm touching you. And it seems like all the information we've had on the pandemic was don't get in people's faces, don't touch them. Certainly, it's easier for me to keep a six-foot distance in, in a, a food store than it is when you're cutting my hair or, for God's sake, you're putting a tattoo on me. That's a really good point. And actually, this Ron, this goes back to what I was mentioning before, and that is it's not just about people having critical knowledge. It's all about, um, when you talk about leadership, you also talk about attitudes. And 
um, there's an attitude of complacency, an attitude that, oh, yes, this is how we've always done things, we know best, but, but what's missing, to John's point, is that people, how do you train people? How do you get them to always be thinking proactively um, about, okay, let, let's really take a look at best practices. Let's look around the world at what people are doing. But it's all about attitude. Somebody said, you know, we're going to open up the tattoo parlors first. And then everyone goes, oh, okay, well, but, but people are not thinking proactively. People are not seeking out the best knowledge so that they can learn from that. It's just an attitude of complacency, I think. Were there case studies or businesses that you dug into that are doing this well? Sadly, I can only give you some old examples. You think about old Sears Roebuck and Company, which I know is not doing well right now, so it's not just a great example. But Sears, when it first started and, and really got going, was the, the, the wish book. I remember as a kid getting this huge catalog would come in the mail, and you go through it with your eyes open and looking at things because they were in the mail order business. And then at the end of World War II, they moved into the center of the cities because that's where people lived. But then they recognized that people were migrating to the suburbs. So they moved to the suburbs and they started opening up their malls to go along with there. Where they failed to adapt was to the online attacks by retailers that were going online. I mean, that's an example. Another great example, academia. academia. Look at the explosion that we've had in the last few years with online learning and look at what the pandemic has done. And, you know, and once again, thinking about knowledge, not only do we have to think about what are the successful ways to do that, but I hate to say this, how are we going to price that such that our, our students who even now think of online learning our undergraduates as less of an opportunity for interaction and in class, how are we going to manage that? And that's going to require not explicit knowledge, but it's going to require tacit knowledge. That term popped up a lot in, in looking at the, the work you guys are doing. So can you talk about the use of tacit knowledge or un, unspoken knowledge versus explicit knowledge? What's the difference? Okay, so explicit knowledge is easy. That's knowledge that you can codify. In other words, when you read a report, um, that's explicit knowledge. You know, anything you write down is explicit knowledge. And that's, that's, that's easy, right? You can store it in a database. In contrast, tacit knowledge is kind of the cumulative experiences, learning, you know, everything that you as a person develop over time, that unique combination of knowledge that you develop. Um, that is your tacit knowledge. And so Ron, your tacit knowledge is completely different from mine and John's and even your colleagues. Everyone has unique experiences which frame how they uh, develop their unique perspectives and knowledge. And that's tacit knowledge. And that's what is um, very, very valuable. Because for example, you, you asked about companies a company like Amazon, a company like Google, these are companies that today are practicing this innovation, this continual learning. They are learning organizations and they put uh, value on tacit knowledge. They, Google, for example, I don't know the exact policy, but they give their employees something like 15% or 20% of their time to do nothing but think and learn. And, and, and try to develop new knowledge so they can be always creative, always 
learning from each other, combining their knowledge to create innovation because it never ends. Just another example of tacit knowledge, which, which maybe will strike people's interest, is humor. Think about humor. What people find funny in the United States, people in Iran won't see as funny. And the reason why is because of the culture and the knowledge, which is not written down somewhere. I can't. I don't know where you can find a book that says, "Here's how you tell a joke in Iran, and here's what's funny. Here's how you tell a joke in you know Britain, and here's what's funny." You have to experience it, as Nori pointed out. You have to live it. You have to understand the culture and deliver it. And that that can't be made very explicit. Can you talk about leadership and the, the concept of team and? Uh, how knowledge in a lot of uh, traditional ways used to come from the top down and filter to the people doing the work. But is that not so much the case anymore? I mean, is it sort of a more equal relationship in terms of how teams work together to leverage knowledge and, and make decisions and get things done? That's one thing we found so interesting about studying the military. As you know, in the military, regardless of which branch, you all start off in boot camp. And that's a very intensive socialization process where they all learn shared values, shared norms. And so over time um, in the military, you're always working together as a team. You live together in the barracks. You train together relentlessly every day, all day, 12 hours a day. And then you're broken up on teams and you learn the language, you learn the culture, you learn the shared values. So, you know, it's interesting if you try to translate into business and in, into American business, we don't have that equivalent. It's harder for businesses here to create that shared sense of bonding of teams, that shared meaning where you just understand each other. So, um, you know, we, in, when we talked about that in the book, we were saying, you know, if we, if we could uh, do anything we want to in this country, we would probably try to create that, that experience with businesses, create that boot camp, create those, those uh, shared experiences. So you could share your knowledge more effectively. I just fully agree. I mean, if you think about the training that one gets, for example, as a firefighter or as a policeman, and there's a set of explicit knowledge that is provided, rules and procedures and things like that. But guess what? When you're fighting a fire, you have to make decisions on the spot as to what to do. You don't have time to talk to the fire chief or the fire commissioner. You don't have time to talk to the police chief. You have to make decisions then. And once again, you have to be able to have the knowledge to be able to do it and also the skill to recognize something new. Ron, I, I can't tell you how, how important I think both Nori and I believe is that new knowledge doesn't get created unless you recognize that it's a new situation and then it dies unless it's communicated. And part of the problem which your question inherently has in it is how do people down in the organization push knowledge up? We have computers that can process so much information so quickly, but the human brain or people in general just aren't, aren't able to keep up in terms of digesting all that information and processing it. Is, is there a disconnect or one's trying to catch up with the other kind of thing going on? Information is not knowledge. Data is not knowledge. Look, it's sunny out today. I've just provided you with information. Yeah, so what? What do I do with that? Okay, sales. I'm showing sales trends are collapsing in the restaurant business. I can provide data on that. 
Okay. Now what? Especially with the uh, increased, the advances in artificial intelligence. And that's kind of like the buzzword. Oh, yeah, well, the artificial intelligence, you know, we don't need people anymore. It's going to do anything. But if you look, for example, at the medical field, artificial intelligence is wonderful. You can process thousands of, um, let's say, um, x-rays to learn to develop patterns. But in fact, you still need that judgment that comes along with a tacit knowledge of the doctor to look at this consolidation of uh, information that the artificial intelligence program has presented to you and be able to use that judgment to determine what the actual diagnosis and treatment is. So making the right decision based on all that information, synth synthesizing it essentially. Exactly, exactly. So how, how do you hope and envision businesses might use this research that you guys have done? I would hope that they, they would do two things. One, which you have addressed about the fact, one of the things that worry about organizations is knowledge corruption, where knowledge is deliberately withheld that people have. So I'd hope that organizations would recognize that that occurs. I would also hope that organizations recognize how important it is to allow individuals to share experiences upward that may be unique that have not been addressed before by the organization. Certainly, again, without beating a dead horse, this pandemic has certainly provided a plethora of those type of situations uh, that can be used. It's not so much about making decisions faster. See, everybody's always interested on the speed side. Nori and I are not so much interested on the speed side as on the quality of the decision. And we would rather see that organizations take a little bit more time to improve the quality of their decision-making processes, their knowledge transfer, and their use of knowledge, and not necessarily the speed. And I, I would add to that, to, to John's statement, which is perfect, but I would also add that if you boil it down, leadership, and the culture that leaders develop is absolutely crucial. If you have leaders who proactively create a culture of learning, a culture of collaboration, a culture of trust that encourages people to take risks, to seek out others with knowledge, to talk to each other, to work together, to always create new knowledge, then that's gonna be a key in, in this continual innovation. And if we take it back to the COVID-19 situation right now, look what happened a day or two ago. The world came together for a vaccine conference. Who was conspicuously missing? Um, without, without getting political, you know, if you can create a, a culture of trust where le world leaders can come together and say, hey, th these, these are our resources, Let's work together. Let's encourage people to share their knowledge instead of hoarding it or, or you know, leading to knowledge corruption. To me, to me, leadership and culture is absolutely huge. Breaking it down even further, is it as basic as just making sure communication is open, it's a two-way street, and then empowering your people on the ground, trusting them to do what they do best? Is that one of the basic tenets of what, what we're talking about here? Yeah, I think so. The only thing is that um, this, you know, it's this is very, it's a, actually a very complex topic because we can say, yes, intuitively uh, facilitating communication is great, but 
unless you have shared experiences, um, we talk about this, and again, going back to the military, when they train together, when they have the same common language, they can communicate more effectively. But let's say, Ron, if you're, if you're a, an engineer and I'm a business person, or, or you're a computer scientist, we speak two very different languages. You may be talking to me, I have no clue what you're talking about. So it gets very complicated and you have to bring together people who can bridge the gap, who have the trust, who have the common shared language, who can communicate effectively. And this is a, this is a, a term that might be a little too, too uh, I don't know, techie or something, but you know, we talk about uh, homophilous networks, people who have shared experiences, but they have the same knowledge heterophilous networks are people who come from two very different, let's say, engineers versus uh, biologists. But if you have people who can, who are boundary spanners, they understand both worlds, you bring them together, and they can create that shared knowledge, that also is important. Any final thoughts, John? Well, just another practical example. I did work with a unnamed Fortune 500 company for several years, and it was very interesting when I would, you know, put teams together based on their functional specialties, marketing, finance, uh, accounting, operations, what have you, and how often they would have difficulties communicating with one another, having even worked in the same organization for years, because their frames of reference, their tacit knowledge, and their explicit knowledge was so very different. And so even within even well-run organizations, there are challenges in, in integrating across the functions as well as up and down, as you've talked about. Well, this is all very interesting, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And uh, thanks, thanks again. Thank you, Ron. We, we appreciate you talking with us. Do you always, do you always say everybody it was interesting to talk with them, even if it wasn't? <laughs> well, in your case, it happens to be true, so... Uh, th thanks again. As always, thanks for tuning us in. You can reach us with comments or questions at mainquestion at main.edu. All our episodes are available on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Ryan Lesnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question. <laughs>